I have so many things to tell you this morning, and there is no way I can get to all of them. And that doesn't mean we're going to have a long teaching. It just means there are many things I wanted to talk about and share that I had to put on hold. Maybe we'll come back to at at another teaching. We are in the midst right now of the Shemitah year. That's the Jewish sabbatical year. Every seven years, uh, the land was to lie fallow and untilled. It was supposed to just rest. The people ignored that, you may recall, for 490 years, so they went into 70 years of captivity so that the land could catch up on that lost rest. The Shemitah year is also the year that all debts were canceled. I would love it if in America we uh, went with that, you know? Car loans, house loans, it's all gone. And it's interesting, I was just reading literally this morning that there are... uh, With the Shemitah year, it doesn't work in a commercial society. It works well in an agricultural society, but in a commercial society like ours, uh, Israel and the Jewish people have have had trouble figuring out how to make it work. They've kind of squeezed it in. Interesting. Well, the Shemitah year is something I want to talk more with you about. It's not going to be the main substance of what we talk about this morning, but it is interesting with all that is taking place, and the Shemitah year is a highly significant year when it comes to the people of Israel, and I'm already way ahead of myself. John chapter (laughs) 9. John chapter 9. Father, we ask for your blessing now in this time of teaching. We ask, Lord, that you will uh, focus us, heart and mind. Lord, that we'll hear your voice and that we'll have understanding of these things. And Father, I, I... pray from the Bible scholar among us to the the person who's just hearing this maybe for the first time even today, that there would be a revelation and there would be some understanding and there would be, Father, some excitement for what you're doing. So I pray you bless this time in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. John chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. As he passed by, he saw a man, blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? (laughs) Jesus answered, It was neither this man's sin nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Stop right there. Recognize here it is the sixth sign. In John's Gospel record. Okay, remember I've told you there are seven of them. This is number six. The seventh one we will deal with in a couple of weeks. But the sixth sign here, the sign of the healing of the blind man, which is about to take place. And Jesus says the reason this man was born blind was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. And in Jesus, we are about to see the works of God. In Jesus, the works of God are on display. And we're going to cover John 9 thoroughly from beginning to end on Wednesday night. Go through the story, try to seek to understand the story. But but today we have another focus. Verse 4. Jesus said, We must work the works of Him who sent me as long as it is day. The night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. One more time. We must work the works of Him who sent me as long as it is day. Night is coming 
when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. In November of 2013, Disney's Frozen came out. It opened to record-breaking numbers. It has gone on to become the highest-grossing animated movie of all time, raking in, to date, $1.27 billion in box office sales. Billion. No wonder parents are begging their daughters to let it go. As of this week, March of 2015, Frozen more aptly describes the White House's frosty relationship with Israel. And that's what we're going to spend a little bit of time talking about this morning. Seeking to understand. Now, whether you're a Democrat or a Republican, you know what? Set it aside. Let's just deal with the facts that are on the ground before us and what we see taking place. Because it should be catching all of our attention. Terms like frigid, icy, not likely to thaw, have snowballed in the press. That's what we're seeing now in the description of a relationship that is now today as cold as it has been in over 70 years. Perhaps the coldest that it has been. A month ago, President Obama was infuriated when House Speaker John Bonner invited Israel's Prime Minister Benjamin Bibi Netanyahu to address Congress. Now, let's give Obama credit just for a moment. That's not the normal way it's done. Typically, invitations like that come from the White House, so it was a slight breach of protocol. But that breach of protocol and that uh, being upset over that, even though perhaps understandable at the time, has blown into a full-on temper tantrum. I have, I have been amazed to watch at the petty response of this current administration. Two weeks ago, B.B. came, he spoke, and he kicked it out the box. And if you haven't seen his address to Congress, YouTube it, man. You need to hear what he had to say about Iran becoming a threshold nuclear state. About the negotiations taking place right now... Starting up again tomorrow morning between the United States and other world powers and Iran to offer them nuclear power and nuclear capability. And it's unbelievable that we are even in this position right now. More on that in a moment. Obama refused to either attend the speech or even meet with Netanyahu when he was here two weeks back. Vice President Joe Biden was had a full schedule. He didn't show up to the speech before Congress. Secretary of State John Kerry, he didn't attend. Interestingly, just a month ago, both Joe Biden and John Kerry made plenty of time to meet with Bibi Netanyahu's opponent, Isaac Herzog, at a February security conference in Germany. Went out of their way to make time for that meeting. The Obama administration claimed they said they didn't want to influence the upcoming Israeli election. And yet we know now the top Obama advisors were in Israel working to unseat Netanyahu and the Likud party from power. Well, this week the results are in. Tuesday was the Israeli election. If you've been keeping track, you know against what all the pollsters and pundits had assumed would happen, Netanyahu easily won victory and will again be Israel's prime minister for a third time in a row, fourth time altogether. 
Washington, uh, I'm sorry, Wall Street Journal Global View columnist Brett Stevens this morning called it a humiliation for Obama. He said, in a sense, he was on the ballot. And many Israelis came to see this as a referendum on Obama. Bibi or Obama and Netanyahu won. I'm just telling you what, what is being understood and seen in the news. Isaac Herzog and his Zionist Union Party, which is just another name for the Labor Party, but Zionist Union might garner more votes. Well, they didn't get the votes they needed to unseat Netanyahu. The Lord saw fit to keep Bibi at the helm. And I, I truly believe that. Now, what would you say, Rick, if Isaac Herzog of the Zionist Union Party had won and he was at the helm of Israel, I would say the Lord saw fit to put Isaac Herzog at the helm. You see, the Lord is the one who's making these decisions. And He has a firm grasp on the nations of the world and on what's taking place in this world. But Netanyahu remains. President Obama's response is to reassess and reevaluate the U.S. position on Israel and the Palestinians. And those are chilling words. What does that mean? It means that right now the White House is seriously considering accepting a UN plan to unilaterally create a Palestinian state based on pre-1967 borders. If you know nothing about Israel and their 1967 borders, those were the borders that Israel were given that they had from 1948 to 1967. When they became a nation, they had roughly an eight-mile stretch at their most narrow point between uh, the Jordan and the sea, between what would have been the Arab state and the sea. Very, very thin, indefensible borders. In 1967, in the Six-Day War, Israel secured the Golan Heights, the Gaza Strip, and expanded their borders to defendable position. Anything less than that is indefensible. You just need to understand that. When people say pre-1967 borders, what they're saying is indefensible borders. And that's what is on the table at the United Nations. And up to this point, the United States has many times been the only one to stand with Israel and say, no, we won't allow that. We won't accept it. To veto negatives against Israel and the UN. But we're reassessing, reevaluating the U.S. position. What does that exactly mean in practical, biblical terms? Turning your Bibles back to the book of Joel. Go left to Joel, chapter 3. Should the UN plan go through acknowledging a Palestinian state, what that means literally is the dividing up of the Jewish state, including dividing out the Golan Heights in the north and cutting Jerusalem in half. It means all of East Jerusalem, which means the Temple Mount, the old city of Jerusalem, and all of that region, the Mount of Olives, the Kedron Valley, that's all East Jerusalem would all be the Palestinian state. What does God have to say about that? Joel chapter 3, verse 1. For behold, in those days, and at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all nations to bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat, or the valley of God's judgment. 
And then I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my inheritance Israel, whom they have scattered among the nations and they have divided up my land. They have also cast lots for my people, traded a boy for a harlot and sold a girl for wine that they may drink. One more time. I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my inheritance Israel, whom they have scattered among the nations, and they have divided up my land. The Lord gives three areas of judgment for the nations. Understand, this is God talking about His judgment of the nations of the earth. Three reasons for judging. Number one, dispersing His people. Number two, dividing His land. And finally, number three, dealing His people in trade. Dispersing, dividing, and dealing unjustly with his people in trade. World pressure for the Palestinian state would accomplish all three. In one useless nation's move. Whether or not we understand Israeli politics, and I believe it's vital that you do, but whether or not you fully grasp that or how the Knesset works or how they elect their leaders or how it all comes together, it is absolutely vital that followers of Jesus know and understand God's promises to Abraham. Going all the way back, Genesis chapter 12, verse 2, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you, and in his seed, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So my son Hayden and I were talking about this because as I've told you we do our drive to school in the mornings and oftentimes it's, it's either his music or it's my news. Well, this week it was my news. I won. And so we're listening to the news and, and Hayden says, Dad, why is the U.S. so concerned about Israel? He's heard me talk about this stuff for years. But why, really, what, what's, what's the U.S.? I'm not talking about Christians, but, but he said, why is the U.S. so involved, so concerned with Israel? Over the past 67 years, you could almost equate American patriotism with support of Israel. Although you may or may not be aware of that, but it goes back further than just the roots of Israel becoming a nation in 1948. Further than 67 years. Further than that statement, where Israel stands, America stands with her. I like the other way around, where America stands, don't worry America, Israel's got your back. You know, you've seen the the fighter jets and that that t-shirt. I think Jim wears that one, I'm not sure. But it goes back further. It goes back to the faith of our founding fathers. The faith of early America. And you can't honestly study American history without acknowledging the profound impact of the Hebrew Scriptures. On our Constitution. On our government. On this very country. John Adams said, I will insist that the Hebrews have done more to civilize man than any other nation. And one of the earliest designs for the seal of the USA, it wasn't ultimately accepted, but one of the early designs submitted by Jefferson, Franklin, and Adams depicted the Israelites crossing the Red Sea with Pharaoh in pursuit and Moses standing on the other side. And the motto beneath said, Rebellion to tyranny is obedience to God. Now that was was an early plan. Another seal was chosen, but on the Liberty Bell... 
Leviticus 25.10 was inscribed, you could see it today, and proclaim freedom throughout the land unto all the inhabitants thereof. Well, that's, that's Hebrew law. Adopted as a slogan in the United States. America's support, even of a Jewish state, my friends, long predates Israel's surprising, surprising rebirth as a nation in 1948. After his election to the presidency, the first presidency, George Washington penned a letter to a Hebrew synagogue in Newport, Rhode Island. He wrote the following. May the children of the stock of Abraham who dwell in this land continue to merit and enjoy the goodwill of the other inhabitants while everyone shall sit under his own vine and his own fig tree and there shall be none to make him afraid. This is George Washington's embrace of the Jewish people as Americans early on. Every year... That synagogue, Newport's congregation, Kahal Kadosh Yeshuat Israel, now called the Toro Synagogue, rereads that letter in a public ceremony every year. They return to that, remembering Washington's promise of a safe place, a safe country for the Jewish people. Chaim Solomon. Chaim Solomon is a name you may be familiar with. Some of you history students. He was a Polish-born Jew. Chaim Solomon almost single-handedly financed Washington in the American Revolutionary War. A Jew. He contributed $650,000 to the American war effort in the Revolution, which is the equivalent of $8.8 billion today. If you look at the U.S. dollar, I think I've told you this before, if you pull out a dollar and take a look at it, you might notice that on the backside of the dollar, there are 13 stars. And people will glance at that and go, oh, 13 stars, 13 colonies, that's what those are for. If you look closely, the 13 stars are Magen Davids. They are stars of David, shields of David. 13 of them to honor and recognize all 13 of the tribes of Israel. 13 because Joseph became Manasseh and Ephraim. Our founding fathers recognized the significance of and the importance of the Jewish people. But it's more than that. John Adams once wrote, I really wish the Jews were again in Judea as an independent nation. And he believed in, quote, the rebuilding of Judea as an independent nation. Lincoln called the whole idea of a Jewish state a noble dream and one shared by many Americans. Fast forward from the early days to 1917 and a very important British declaration called the Balfour Declaration. I'm going to try and move you quickly through some history, but you've got to hear this. It was called Palestine at the time. The, the region that is now Jordan and Israel was all one large region, just referred to as Palestine, a Roman name given as a slap in the face of the Jews because it means Philistine land. So it was all called Palestine, and it was under the British mandate, which means after World War I, the British had full control of all of Palestine. After defeating the Ottoman Turks, they now controlled the whole region. The British mandate. Lord Balfour, in 1917, previous Prime Minister, then Foreign Secretary for Great Britain, wrote an official letter declaring British support for the establishment of a Jewish national home in Palestine. 
And at that time, 1917, the Jewish people, the Zionist movement was thrilled. We actually have the door open. The British mandate, under the authority and control of Great Britain, the door has now been opened for a Jewish national home. Now, even though Great Britain waffled on this, the subsequent white paper and and, and things that happened in Great Britain, there began to be a waffling and a pulling back and a cutting back and a carving back of what they originally promised. But even as they did this, understand, in 1922... And in 1944, the United States Congress twice voted unanimous resolutions endorsing and supporting the Balfour Declaration. Our Congress said, we are behind this. We support it. America agrees in a Jewish national home as described, as written in the Balfour Declaration. Woodrow Wilson, himself a progressive said, quote, the allied nations with the fullest concurrence of our government and people are agreed that in Palestine shall be laid the foundations of a Jewish commonwealth. Calvin Coolidge said the Jews themselves, of whom a considerable number were already scattered throughout the colonies, were true to the teachings of their prophets. The Jewish faith is predominantly the faith of liberty. Now that's just a handful, a smattering of things. There's so much more, and if you want to dig and study this, study the Jewish roots of America, study the the, the Jewish involvement in America, and how interwoven, and when you hear a phrase that actually was first coined in the 1950s, the Judeo-Christian ethic, or the Judeo-Christian value of America, that's why. Because as Christian as America was at its founding, it had strong Jewish influence. Hey, if you're a Christian, you have strong Jewish influence. That's our our root. Our heritage goes literally being grafted into the heritage of, of Israel. Which is why I stand in such strong support of Israel. Because, hey, my Lord is their Lord. My God is their God. My Savior is their Mashiach. November 29th, 1947. Some of this I'm just reviewing for you. The UN approved what was called the partition plan. It was a two-state solution. You see, at that point, there was already Transjordan. So already the British mandate had been carved up and this huge, vast area given to the Arabs called Transjordan and the rest was intended for the Jewish people. But the Arabs had such a backlash, such an outcry against it that the UN came up with this partition plan taking what was left and dividing it up between Jews and Arabs. In 1947, the Jews immediately accepted it. It wasn't all that they wanted, but it it was something. It was a place to go. The Arabs walked out and rejected it. The UN approved it. Five and a half months later, May 14th, 1948, with the approval of that partition plan of the United Nations, on the eve of Shabbat in an art museum in Tel Aviv, they hastily set up tables and banners and the Jewish state declared independence. Israel was a nation reborn. As Isaiah the prophet said would happen, who has heard such a thing? Isaiah 66, verse 8. Who has seen such things? Can a land be born in one day? Can a nation be brought forth all at once? As soon as Zion travailed, she also brought forth her sons. The travail being Holocaust. The bringing forth of her sons, the birth of that nation. 
Shall I bring to the point of birth and not give delivery, says the Lord? Or shall I who gives delivery shut the womb, says your God? Be joyful with Jerusalem. Rejoice for her, all you who love her. Be exceedingly glad with her, all you who mourn over her. May 14th, 1948, and 11 minutes after Israel's declaration, 11 minutes... President Harry Truman signed a bold executive order officially recognizing the state of Israel. You know what happened? America was blessed. And you can track this. Every time American leadership has taken a stand for Israel, America has been blessed. Because as the Lord said to Abraham, those who bless you, I will bless, and those who curse you, I will curse. Mark that, because it does affect international policy. It should. The State Department, I've said before, every one of them should have a Bible open on their desks. And a Koran. So we can understand the enemy. Eleven minutes is all it took Harry Truman to sign that. I've got a copy of that at home. It's so cool just to look at that. It took him 11 minutes. How long did it take Obama to congratulate Netanyahu this last week? Two and a half days. Since Harry Truman, every U.S. president has stood in support of Israel, of the Jewish state. Kennedy, Johnson, Nixon, Ford, Carter, Reagan, Bush 41, Clinton, Bush 43. And President Obama himself once said, and I quote, We stand with Israel. As a Jewish democratic state, because we know that Israel is born of firmly held values that we as Americans share. That's not why I stand with Israel. I stand with Israel because we know that Israel is born of God. And because God has said, this people are my people. You bless them, I will bless you. You curse them, I will curse you. I'm just going to stand with God on this. I think it's probably the safest place to be. Congressional support for Israel has always been strong. Even when presidential support has waffled a bit or wavered, you can always count on Congress. Democrat and Republican bipartisan support for Israel has always been very strong. Two weeks ago, however, eight senators and 36 representatives boycotted Netanyahu's speech, along with, as I said before, Joe Biden and John Kerry. That's a change. That has not happened before. Now that's one that may have slipped by you and you may have said, well, it's just a partisan thing. It's more than that, my friends. Support for Israel is waning in America. And especially above our current governmental situation. By the way, October 24th, 1995... A lot of people are unaware that this even happened. The Senate, in a vote 93 to 5, and the House, in a vote 374 to 37, adopted Resolution S-1322. What's that? The Jerusalem Embassy Relocation Act. Our Congress signed an act that acknowledges Jerusalem as the capital of the State of Israel, calling for the United States Embassy currently located in Tel Aviv to be moved, relocated to Jerusalem as the recognized capital of the Jewish state. Why is our embassy still in Tel Aviv? One reason. Tacked on 
to that act, that resolution, is a presidential waiver which could be issued at six-month intervals to keep the embassy in Tel Aviv if it served the United States national security interest. In the 20 years since this resolution was signed, Presidents Clinton, Bush, and Obama have signed the waiver 40 times. Keeping the U.S. Embassy in Tel Aviv, ignoring Israel's claim to Jerusalem as their rightful capital. There's a chill in the air. It's getting colder. On the one hand, the White House continues to push for a deal with Iran. Even as this weekend, the Ayatollah Khomeini agreed with shouts of death to America. Somebody explain this to me. Well, we'll just allow Iran 6,000 centrifuges, you know, instead of more. That, that, that'll limit them. And we'll just allow, we'll limit the amount of time it would take them to build a nuclear bomb. Let me tell you something. I don't have any proof of this except just my own sense. But I would wager that right now, as these negotiations are going on, Iran is furiously working on the nuclear bomb. It's all just a ploy to give them more time. This is a nation... Rick, are you anti-Persian? No, I'm not. But this is a nation with a leadership that has called for death to America. Has called America the great Satan and Israel the little Satan. And yet we're in negotiations trying to appease them to get to a point where they can go nuclear. At the same time... The Obama administration, according to a Ruth Sheva newspaper in Israel, is carefully weighing whether to agree to a draft resolution at the UN Security Council calling for the Palestinian state. Showing trust for an avowed enemy of America, distrust for Netanyahu and Israel. Negotiate with your enemies and distrust your friends. And it is getting cold. There is an iciness going on right now. Yeah, but what about what Netanyahu said? He said the Arabs were going to the polls in droves. He was being being racist. Well, that's what some Israeli Arabs are saying. That during the election process, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday of last week, that Netanyahu was trying to get his base out and was calling out saying, look, they are busing in Arabs. Well, they were. But he was called racist and, and, and he was called, you know, baiting the other side and, and he made the comment that he didn't see the possibility of a Palestinian state on his watch. Is he backpedaling from that? Some have said. Is he, is he pulling back? He's trying to play nice. Absolutely, as a politician. But what he's saying right now, what he clarified, and if you saw this this week in news uh, reports and in interviews that were done with Netanyahu, he said, look, here's the deal. Unless the Palestinians are willing to recognize the Jewish state, which they're not, unless they're willing to cut ties with Hamas, a terrorist organization bent on the destruction of Israel, which they're currently not, unless they're willing to come back to the bargaining table with those issues at hand, how can you even assume there would be a Palestinian state? He said, these are terms. He said, today this is unnegotiable. He's right. And yet the Obama administration is using that as an impetus for reviewing and reassessing America's relationship with Israel. And I've got to wonder if they haven't been looking for some opportunity all along. 
Benjamin Netanyahu, what's his deal anyway? This hawkish prime minister. He said while the President of the United States is concerned for the security of his country, the Prime Minister of Israel is concerned for the survival of his country. Interesting. We talk about, we have concerns about ISIS and that growing influence in the Middle East. Netanyahu said, hey, ISIS is thousands of miles away from you. ISIS is 12 miles away from us. Any land we give up at this point today is handing land over either to ISIS or to Iran or to a terrorist proxy of Iran. So that's the situation we're in, and I hear ringing over the top of all of this, Joel chapter 3, verse 2, and that prophecy, and they have divided up my land. And it is cold. And it is a frosty day. And here we are, midway, through a blood moon tetrad. And we've talked about this. And I know people shy away a little bit. And you, don't want, you don't want to date the coming of Jesus. We don't know the day or the hour. That gets thrown out so quickly. Oftentimes that's thrown out as an excuse not to deal with what's going on around us. We don't know the day or the hour. But we do know, curiously, that we are in the midst. 2014, 2015, we've talked about this, of a blood moon tetrad. That is, four lunar eclipses. The first one happening on Passover of 2014 already happened. The second one happening on Sukkot of 2014 already happened. The first and the last of the Jewish holidays of 2014. 2015, the first one happening on Passover. The last one happening on Sukkot, the first and the last Jewish holidays, exactly in this two-year period. And that's why a lot of Christians are sitting up and taking notice of this blood moon tetrad. It's not that we are uh, looking for signs in the skies. It's not that we're, we're being led as, as though we're looking up a horoscope or something. But what's fascinating is that the, the sky does provide, the Bible tells us, uh, signs and seasons. And we note this, and this blood moon tetrad, the last time we saw this kind of a bracket over two years, four lunar eclipses in a row like this, It bracketed 1967 and the epic six-day war where Israel retook Jerusalem. The last time it was seen before that, it bracketed 1948 and 49, Israel's declaration of independence. And the last time it happened before that was 1492 when Columbus sailed the ocean blue. Right. You know your history. <clears throat> what else happened in 1492? Jews were kicked out of Spain. Every last Jew was expelled from Spain. Which, okay, so they were asked to leave Spain. No, they were expelled from Spain. All of the Jewish people residing there, and it was a huge population. Imagine us kicking the Jews out of America. So there's definitely some interesting connection here. Oh, and by the way, I started out mentioning the Shemitah year. This is the Shemitah year. So in addition to the the blood moons on Passover Sukkot, Passover Sukkot, this is the seventh year. This is the sabbatical year. This year. Oh, and by the way, March 21st saw 
a solar eclipse that land, March 21st for us on our calendar, what, what day is that on the Jewish calendar? The first of Nisan, which is the first day of the religious calendar of the Jews. It begins the religious season for the Jews. Nisan the 15th being Passover. 15th, is that right? 14th. Nisan the 14th is Passover. The first of Nisan, a solar eclipse by a supermoon, by the way. What does all this mean? I don't know. (laughs) I'm just purveying the information here. But with all of this going on, all of this is concurrent. In Jewish thinking, a solar eclipse tends to spell national judgment. Why? Well, it might have something to do with the fact that on Nisan the 1st, A.D. 70, there was a solar eclipse. And that was the year that Rome destroyed and drove out the Jewish people. By five and a half months after that solar eclipse, Jerusalem's temple burned to the ground on the 9th of Av as Rome destroyed the temple and the city. So in Jewish thinking, a solar eclipse, while maybe in and of itself may not be that big a deal, a solar eclipse on the 1st of Nisan could spell a national judgment of some kind. The nations, back to the political side of all this, the nations, including our own, seem to be lining up against Jerusalem. Turkey is more hostile to Jerusalem than they have been in decades. Russia's doing its own thing as, as Putin is still striving for power. The other night, he was at a, a, a grand ball dressed to the nines in, in a tuxedo. He was Putin on the Ritz. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> the nation's gang are lining up in opposition of Israel. And what's frightening to me is when my nation is in line. And the Bible says, Zechariah 12, verse 3, It will come about in that day that I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples, and all who lift it will be severely injured. And all the nations of the earth will be gathered against it. All the nations without exception, Zechariah prophesied. And so Joel prophesied, I'm going to gather all the nations to the valley of Jehoshaphat, and I will enter into judgment with them there. And something we have to recognize, as much as we may love America and love this nation, there's not a nation on the planet that will escape this judgment because there's not a nation on the planet that will not line up against Israel. Are we seeing those days? It's enough to make you shiver. Isaiah 62, verse 1. This is a verse that often comes to me, especially when when the Lord puts it on my heart to talk about Israel and to bring up some of these things. For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. For Jerusalem's sake, I will not keep quiet until her righteousness goes forth like brightness and her salvation like a torch that is burning. Hey, like I said before, I'm just the messenger. But I'll tell you what, I will not keep silent where Israel is concerned. I will not keep silent for Zion's sake. Romans 11.25, Paul said, speaking to Christians, I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery. 
so that you will not be wise in your own estimation. That a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved, just as it is written, the Deliverer will come from Zion, and He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. That's God's promise. That's God's plan. And the question is, do I align myself with the plans and purposes of God or not? And if I do, then for Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. What's all this got to do with John chapter 9? Why don't we go there right now? (laughs) That was all introduction. John chapter 9, verse 39 So at the end of this story where Jesus has healed a blind man and there's this whole uproar over it, listen to what he says in verse 39, For judgment I came into this world, so that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Now please understand, when Jesus came into the world the first time, He came in saying, and just ignore the screens, I'm not sure why we're having announcements right now. (laughs) Thanks, Jim. For judgment, I came into the world. Wait a minute, I thought when He came to the world the first time, He didn't come to judge. He didn't. But He did come for judgment. What do you mean? Discernment. His coming into the world would bring judgment, would give us the ability to make right or wrong judgment. For judgment I came into this world so that those who do not see may see, may have discernment, may have understanding, may be able to judge rightly what's going on. And those who see may become blind. That is, those who should have sound judgment are suddenly not going to have sound judgment. The ones who should be seeing will be blind. And that's kind of the context then for this whole healing that takes place that would glorify God. Back to verse 4. Jesus said, We must work the works of Him who sent me as long as it is day. The night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Let me quickly break this down for you. Three parts. We must work the works of Him who sent me. We must work the works of Him who sent me. Now, anytime we talk about works, I always got to add the caveat. You will never work your way to heaven. So when Jesus talks about rolling up his sleeves and doing the work, He is not talking about your salvation. He is not talking about what you have to do to be saved. He's talking about what you do when you're saved. After you've become saved. When you know that you're secure in your salvation. Now, now that you're saved by grace. Now that you're saved by His mercy. Time to go to work. Not to save yourself. But because now you're on the team. We must work the works of Him who sent me. Jesus said in John 4.34. My food is to do the will of Him who sent me and to accomplish His work. He said in John 5.17, My Father is working until now, and I myself am working. John 5.36, The works which the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works I do, testify about me that the Father has sent me. And so it falls right in line with all of Jesus' teaching and His call to His disciples, We must work the works of Him who sent me. Now understand this. When Jesus said that, F.F. Bruce, among some other commentators, say Jesus is referring primarily to Himself. He's just doing it in the third person. 
I don't think so. Jesus said, when Jesus was completely confident of saying I when he needed to, before Abraham was born, I am. He knew how to talk about himself. But in this case, he says, we must work the works of him who sent me. And I love it. It's the inclusion of Jesus. He's talking to his apostles immediate. And I think he's calling across the centuries to you and to me today. We must work the works of him who sent me. I suggest he is including all of his followers near and far, then and now. So how do we work the works of God? Great question. John chapter 6, verse 28, the Jewish people surrounding Jesus at that time asked the same question. What shall we do so that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. Oh, good. Good. So I can just sit back and believe. Great. I like that. You go ahead and mow the lawn, Father. I'll sit here on the chair and sip my lemonade. I believe. I'm just going to be chilling here. Belief in Jesus affects behavior. If it does not affect and change your behavior, you do not believe in Jesus. If I say I believe in Him, what did James say? If I say I have faith but there are no works to back it up, it's meaningless. Believe in Him whom He has sent. If you believe in Jesus, you will be rolling up your sleeves and saying, Father, where's the lawnmower? How can I get to work? What can I do? What am I called to? You know what believing in Him looks like? Look at Jesus Himself. Because yes, when Jesus says we must work the works of Him who sent me, He is talking to a degree about Himself. Time is short. And so what did Jesus do? He preached the Gospel. He taught the Word. He called for repentance. He loved the sinner. He called out sin. He served. He healed. He raised the dead. All to the glory of God. He was constant at work. Except when He was praying early in the morning so He could get to the work at hand that day. Are we sipping lemonade or are we working the works of God? Are the shades pulled down or are the sleeves rolled up? I asked the shepherds this question on Thursday night. How would we behave? What would we do? How would we act if we believed as a group that this Shemitah year... That this four blood moon solar eclipse year, that this was the year that Jesus was going to call us home. What would we do? And Glenn said, full court press. And I said, absolutely. So why isn't the church on full court press? Are you working the works of God? Listen, regardless of what happens in the White House, we got to ask, what's taking place in my house? What's happening in your house? Regardless of global geopolitics, we have to say, what is our concern for the kingdom? We must work the works of Him who sent me. Jesus said, part two, as long as it is day. As long as it's day, as long as we've got light by which to see. In John 11, verse 9, Jesus said, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble, because he sees the light of this world. 
But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. And my friends, the days of toying with faith and Christian light, as far as I'm concerned, are done. We do not have time to play church anymore. It is day. Night is coming. We must work the works of Him who sent me as long as it is day. Because stumbling happens at night. Not in the daytime. Matthew 5.14 You are the light of the world. Remember we talked about this? Jesus said, I am the light of the world. And then He shares that description with His people. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. We are not to be stumbling now. Now is the time for running. Now is the time to put our hands to the work of the harvest. Now is the time. I love it. I'm reading Farmer Boy to Naomi and David in the evenings now. The Little House series. We're on Farmer Boy about Almanzo Wilder. And it is unbelievable the length of their day during the harvest. Up at dark and not even into the house before it's dark again. And, and, and the description of how they work the harvest. And this young man, Almanzo, working with his father. And how it all, and it, it's beautifully written. You ought to read the books. It's great stuff. But, but we're going through and I'm recognizing the, the amount of effort and work and energy that goes into the harvest. And I think about myself and the church and I ask, Lord, are we doing that? Or are we still sipping lemonade in the church? Now is the time to get at it. But Rick, someone might say, you don't understand. I've got problems. I've got sin struggles. I've got old wounds I'm dealing with. My marriage is on rocky ground. My job is at risk. My life is a struggle. i got this sin thing that just keeps coming back. And you know what I hear when you say that? I hear when I say that, that I've got eye trouble. That's the issue. It's just eye trouble. I get it. My coldest, darkest days are when my eyes are fixed on me instead of on Jesus. It's when I'm looking at my issues. Paul said, Ephesians 5.15, Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time. Because the days are evil. Hey, I get it. There's sin in the world. And there are temptations and there are lures. But if our eyes are fixed on Jesus, if we know the time... Like he knew the time? Dudes, we are running for the kingdom. 1 Thessalonians 5.4 You brethren are not in darkness that the day would overtake you like a thief. You are all sons of light. You're sons of day. We are not of night. We are not of darkness. We are not those who are stubbing our toes on the coffee table on our way through the dark house. We are those who in the light of day are proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Becoming less focused on ourselves and more focused on Him. Listen, what the Lord Jesus in human flesh was suggesting is is this. Alexander McLaren wrote, There was work to be done which must be crowded into a definite space because when that space was passed, there would be no more opportunity for the work to be done. Jesus had less than six months before final impact. And he knew it. 
Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12 says, Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm to the end. And so Jesus says, we must work the works of Him who sent me. As long as it is day, thirdly, night is coming when no one can work. What does He mean by that? Night is coming when no one can work. Well, in simple, pure, physical terms, death. There's only so much time you have on this planet. I have on this planet. I have X amount of days. They have all been numbered. God knows every one. From start to finish, I've got X amount of time. And then I can't work anymore for the Lord. Until I get to enter into the glorious kingdom. And then works a totally different thing. But right now, how much time do you have to do what God has called you to do? If you're young, you might say, oh, I got 30, 40, 50 years. And I would say, good luck with that. You may not. Because you see, in deeper spiritual terms, after the light of the world departed, Jesus indicates there would be a darkness of life without faith. Night's coming. Where the light of the world is not going to be present in the world except by faith. Except by the abiding power of His Holy Spirit. Well, then you'll have light, which is why you are the light of the world. Because now the light is coming from, emanating from Jesus and reflecting off of His church into the world. Whereas when Jesus said this, He was in the world Himself. The light was right there. But now, the sun is bouncing off of the church. And that's the only way light is going to be seen in this world. Through faith in Jesus. He said, John 12.35, For a little while longer the light is among you. Walk while you have light. So that darkness will not overtake you. He who walks in the darkness does not know where he goes. Do you know where you're going? Do you know what you're doing? What is the next big thing on the horizon for you in your life? Do you have something you're working toward? Some final project at work? Some issue ahead? Something that you want to accomplish? This is what's out there. This is what's ahead of me. You know what it struck me this morning? The next big thing in my life is Jesus coming. I I, I Honestly, I cannot think of another thing that even comes close to that. That's the event. That's what I'm looking forward to. That's my goal. It's getting darker. And there is a real night ahead for this world. There is a darkness coming upon this world unlike anything anyone has ever experienced. It is a darkness that will affect every nation, including the nation of Israel. One of the deepest darknesses It will be actually the deepest darkness where no light is left, whether generated by Christ or reflected by His church. There will be no light of the world. And that time is called the tribulation. In 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 7, Paul wrote very clearly, the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who restrains will do so until he's taken out of the way. 
And then that lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will slay with the breath of His mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of His coming. That is, the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan with all power and signs and false wonders and with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish because, listen, very simply, because they did not receive the love of the truth so to be saved. And Paul warned of this. And Jesus warned of this. The icy cold darkness of tribulation. That is coming upon this whole world. But for those who keep His word of perseverance, Revelation 3.10 tells us. So where does that leave us today? We must work the works of Him who sent me as long as it is day. The night is coming when no one can work. Here's what impresses me the most about these verses. For all the theology and for all the the motivation and the encouragement that we have to work the works of God, recognizing what's taking place in the world around us, what we get most precious of all is a glimpse into the heart of Jesus. See, He spoke personally of the limitations of His flesh, limitations that He never had before. But when He came into this world, He had a limit. He had... 33 years. And at this point, less than six months. When he began his ministry, he knew three years to do it. Three years to do it. Bridge Fellowship, what if I said we have three years to do it? What will we do? I don't even think we have that long. If we're here in three years, I'll say, okay, I was wrong, but I'm sure glad we're motivated and still working. In fact, that was another thing we talked about at our shepherds meeting. What if we thought this was the last year, full court press? What if ten years from now we're still here? Full court press. How how much the better? Ten more years that we would have to harvest and invite the lost to salvation. Doesn't mean we're wrong. Doesn't mean we're embarrassed because all the Shemitah year came and went and nothing happened. Okay. Doesn't bother me in the least. We will work the works of Him who sent us until He calls us home. And whether it's this year or next or the next is actually beside the point. Jesus knew the limitations of His flesh. He knew the time of His departure. John 13 verse 1 tells us. He knew. And His response in view of His impending death was we must work the works of God. Don't just look busy because Jesus is coming. Get busy because Jesus is coming. If we truly believe His coming is near, we must be busy in our faith. We only have a limited amount of time before night falls. Now, let me end with this. What's really fascinating is that Jesus, He says, we must work these works as long as it's day. Night is coming when no one can work. Paul says the exact opposite. He comes along and in Romans 13 verse 12, rather than saying the day is almost gone and the night is coming, Paul says the night is almost gone and the day is near. Well, which is it? The night is almost gone, the day is near, therefore let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Listen. What to Jesus was the light of day was to Paul the darkness of worldly night. 
what to Christ was the night of His coming death was to Paul the hope of eternal salvation. And it's remarkable that the light of the world went through the dark night of His own death for you and for me that there might be a growing light at the end of the long cold night. McLaren put it this way, and I just love this. The light of the world went into the valley of the shadow of death and lit it up from end to end. That's what Jesus did. And that's why Paul's right that now the night is almost over and the day is approaching. And that is our great and glorious hope. The coming of Jesus, the light of day, when we will be present with the light of the world. Not just the light of the world present in and with me, but I'm going to be with Him where He is, surrounding His throne, praising Him. And Revelation 22 verse 5 tells us down the line, there will no longer be any night because they will not have the need of a light, of a lamp or the light of the sun because the Lord God will illumine them and they will reign forever and ever. Amen. So let's get busy. You know, let's, let's tell people about Jesus. Let's drag them if we have to. Kicking and screaming to church. We'll give them coffee when they get here. I know you didn't want to come have a donut. You know. Now is not the time to be shy in our faith. Now is the time to be as bold as we have ever been because, my friends, there's not much time left. And I think all the evidence in the news cycle around us and in what's happening in the world points to exactly what we're saying this morning. Rachel, why don't you come on up. Let's stand together. Would you bow with me? We're going to pray and then Rachel will lead us in a song. And while we're singing, the invitation is to you to come forward. And it may be because you want to receive Jesus for the first time. It may be because you have been a little lax. Maybe you've been kicking back on the lounge chair with your lemonade and you're saying, I I want to commit myself. I want to dedicate myself to the labor of the church, to the work of the Lord. Come forward and pray this morning and dedicate yourself to that purpose. If you want to be baptized, the water is good. If you have any need at all, when we sing the song, I invite you to come. Right now, let's pray. Father, we pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Father, we pray that Your hand be over Your people Israel and the nation of Israel. Father, we come aligning ourselves to Your will and to Your purposes this morning. We come laying aside what may have been tradition or theology just to accept what Your Word declares. And Father, we do accept Your authority in these things. We pray for salvation for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For Your people Israel as well as for every last man, woman, and child on the face of the earth, we pray for salvation. We pray that we might be now sent to the harvest. We ask You, Father, for strength to work the works of God. Not human strength, but the power of Your Spirit. And we pray, Father, in the harvest and in the labor for the refreshment of the living water. 
We pray that You will be calling people through us to be born again and to receive salvation eternal. We pray recognizing we have so little time. And so we commit ourselves to You, Lord. And Father, I pray that You will now move in the hearts of all gathered here and draw anyone forward who needs to spend some time with You today. In Jesus' name. Amen. Prayer team, come forward and let's sing together.